Welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm your host, Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, January 12th, 2020. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? He was sinless, wasn't he? So why did he need to be baptized? What about the River Jordan, the place of Jesus' baptism? You might wonder if the location is significant, and the short answer is yes. Have you ever heard that John the Baptist had a priestly background, and that when he baptized Jesus, he was exercising his priestly role? We'll talk about this and more today in our episode for the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. When the show is over, be sure to subscribe and check out our website at sundaydive.com. So today we are focusing in on the gospel from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is the story of the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. So John has been out in the wilderness preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God, and crowds, throngs of people have been coming to him to be baptized. And then in our gospel today, Jesus himself comes to John to be baptized. So we'll start in the best way possible by reading the text together. I'm reading from the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, Catholic edition. And again, this is the gospel from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came out from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Again, that's our gospel from Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. So we're celebrating today the Feast of the Baptism. And one of the first questions that people always have when we are discussing the scriptures surrounding the baptism of Jesus is uh, more of a theological question, honestly, and it is why was Jesus baptized to begin with? Because for us, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. And we know that Jesus, we know that our Lord was sinless. And so we have to ask ourselves, why in the world was Jesus baptized? But the first century Jewish context of our gospel helps us understand what might be going on with Jesus' baptism. So first of all, baptism was very common in first century Jewish circles. So, I mean, that's the first thing that that for us to, to understand, we tend to think of baptism and we think of it from the Christian context. We think of it primarily as a sacrament, which is good, but baptism existed before it was instituted by Jesus as a sacrament. Okay. And so for example, we can look at the Greek word for baptism, baptizo, And it just means simply to dip or to submerge. And in some instances, it does mean to wash. And often baptism in first century Jewish culture had a sort of liturgical or pseudo-liturgical connotation to it. So for example, um, archaeologists have found all throughout um, uh, Palestine, especially in this first century times, um, ritual baths in Hebrew called mikveh. And these ritual baths were used to ritually purify oneself. Um, So, for example, if you remember back to the story of the wedding feast at Cana, the giant jars that the servants are told to fill are, many believe, mikvehs. Okay, and so that would indicate to archaeologists that the home that this um, wedding was being celebrated in was the home of devout 
Jews, all right? Um, there were mikveh uh, outside the temple. So it was a requirement before you entered the temple that you had to ritually wash. You had to baptize yourself in a way, okay? Um, the Essenes, a sect of Judaism that is uh, most familiar to us because of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community, they practiced um, pseudo-liturgical baptism, washing, okay? They had lots of mikveh, large mikveh. Um, archaeologists have uncovered at Qumran. So baptism was very common in first century Judaism. If we look at baptism and its most fundamental meaning as a sort of washing or submerging or dipping into water, okay? So that's the first thing to understand, that when we hear Jesus being baptized for a first century Jew, they're not going to be thinking with the Catholic Christian worldview, theological worldview that we have. And so that question doesn't really exist for them. Why was Jesus baptized? Because he was sinless, okay? But we do need to take into account the fact that John kind of asks a similar question question here a little bit. So John, uh, it tells us, objects in a way to Jesus being baptized. And what he says to Jesus is, I need to be baptized by you. And so it seems that John is recognizing there's something a little bit confusing going on here. And uh, for John, he's saying to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, likely because the baptism that John is practicing is for repentance. He was practicing a baptism for repentance. So people would come to John to be baptized when they were repentant of their sins, okay? And John recognizing that Jesus, like we recognize, did not have sin, is saying, no, I need to be baptized by you. But there's something interesting going on in Jesus's answer here. So Jesus says, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness, what does Jesus mean here when he says to fulfill all righteousness? Now, biblical scholars have noted that Matthew likes to use this word fulfill in his gospel, and he uses it in um, clear and distinct ways. So he uses this word the, uh, for fulfill um, some 16 times in his gospel, and almost every time Matthew uses it, he's pointing to a fulfillment of scripture, Okay, and so we can ask ourselves if this is what Matthew is pointing to, or Jesus, because Matthew puts these words on the lips of Jesus, if Jesus is referring to a fulfillment of scriptures by being baptized, by needing to be baptized, we can ask ourselves what scriptures is he referring to that need to be fulfilled? And the scriptures. I would argue, many theologians and other biblical scholars will argue, the scriptures that Jesus is pointing to that need to be fulfilled by his baptism are the scriptures pointing to the monarchy and the monarchical, <laughs> that's kind of a hard word to say, the monarchical anointing of the son of David, okay? So what Jesus is wanting to fulfill here is the expectations for the anointing of the son of David, all right? And what am I getting at here? Well, before a king takes his throne, generally speaking, he is anointed as a king. And so we saw this with Saul, we saw this with David, and we're going to see it. It's a story that we might be less familiar with, but we do see it with um, the most prominent son of David, Solomon, okay? So if we turn to 1 Kings one thirty-two, 
we get the account of Solomon's anointing as king. So 1 Kings one thirty two. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon my son to ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit upon my throne for he shall be king in my stead and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Okay, so that's the story of Solomon's, I mean, the story of David's instruction for the anointing of Solomon as king, and those instructions are carried out. So essentially this story at 1 Kings uh, one thirty two and following shows us what happened at Solomon's anointing, and there's a couple of things we need to point out here. So there are several people present, and presiding over the anointing of Solomon as king, um, Zadok, who is a priest, and Nathan, who is a prophet. Those two are going to preside over Solomon's anointing. Let's talk about the location of Solomon's anointing. So David instructs that they take Solomon down to Gihon. Okay, what is Gihon? Gihon is a spring just outside of Jerusalem. That's actually the water source for Jerusalem. Okay, and Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet are going to take Solomon down to the Gihon, down to the spring, and there they're going to anoint him at the spring as the king, as the crown prince, all right? Once that has taken place, David instructs them that Solomon, riding on David's mule is then going to be brought up triumphantly into back into Jerusalem, and there he's going to sit upon his throne. And David says, why is all this? Because I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Okay, and that's even important there too, because David is pointing out that he's going to rule uh, jointly over Israel and over Judah. Okay, now, how is this relevant to our gospel? It's extremely relevant to our gospel because there's these amazing parallels between the story at 1 Kings 1 and the story of our gospel at Matthew 3. So Jesus is going to go out to a water source. This water source is going to be the River Jordan. At the River Jordan, there's going to be a figure who's going to preside, if you will, over this occurrence. That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is best known as a prophet. And so in that role, he fulfills the role of Nathan, the prophet, at the first anointing of the son of David. But this is what we gloss over. John the Baptist was also a priest. Okay, so if you remember back to, for example, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is in the temple offering sacrifice. This is the role of a priest. And so John the Baptist had a priestly pedigree, and this likely would have been very well known. Okay, some people even surmise that John the Baptist was 
well-respected because he came from the priestly class that was in general more respected among the Judeans in the South. Okay, anyways, I digress. John the Baptist is a priest. And so in that identity, he also fulfills the role of Zadok at 1 Kings 1. So we have in John the Baptist, both Nathan the priest and Zadok the prophet. And John the Baptist is going to anoint Jesus at the River Jordan. And after he anoints him, there's going to be a period of waiting. Follow me here. A period of waiting because what, what's going to happen after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist? Well, he's going to begin his public ministry. He's going to travel around. He's going to teach. He's going to heal people. He's going to drive out demons. He's going to do all these things. But eventually he's going to come back to Judea. And when he does, when the time is right, he's going to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem. And do you remember what Jesus rides upon? This is the only time in scriptures that we're told that Jesus rides upon an animal, unless we say that it counts when he's in utero and Mary's on the on the donkey. <laughs> but the only time that the scriptures tell us that Jesus rides upon an animal is the story of Palm Sunday when Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem and he rides upon a donkey. Okay, now a donkey is not a mule. I'll grant you that. But the two animals have are very, very similar. Okay, and we can talk about um, the, the underlying theme of their similarity. Why would it be significant that Solomon rides upon a mule? Because a mule is a an animal of peace. A horse, in contrast, is an animal of war, okay? So which animal, if you've ridden either animal, if you've ridden either a horse, a mule, or a donkey, which animal would you rather have in war? The horse. I tell this story all the time, but my great uncle had mules, and I would ride these things as a kid. I was always try to get them at minimally at a trot and they, they could hardly trot. They definitely could not run. Okay. So you do not want to be caught in the middle of battle on a mule and especially not on a donkey. And so even though a donkey is not quite a mule and a mule is not quite a donkey, as far as the signal they're sending, when Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is saying to the people watching this, I am the new son of David. But this identity is not just revealed on Palm Sunday. That's why this gospel at Matthew 3 is so important. Jesus' identity as the new son of David is revealed here for the first time explicitly. Okay, We have other times previous to this, and we've talked about a lot of these uh, times as we've been uh, traveling through, if you will, the Christmas season. There have been lots of other times where Jesus has been revealed to us as the new son of David, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the king. So for example, last week we talked about the epiphany and how what the magi do and the gifts that they bring, they show forth Jesus's kingship. But this is the first time in scripture that we're going to get an explicit showing forth of Jesus for he is. And we can't think of anything more explicit than this. And why do I keep saying that? Because the explicit showing of who Jesus is comes from the very voice of God. 
It comes from the very voice of God. So if we continue uh, reading and looking at our gospel, it says um, at the end of verse 15 that John consents, and so he does indeed baptize Jesus. And then at verse 16 and following, it says, when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. Okay. So the heavens open and we get the unmediated revelation from God, the father about Jesus's identity. And this is, this is food for meditation here. We get, I'll say this again, we get the unmediated revelation from God the Father as to Jesus' identity. These are words from God the Father himself. And what does God the Father himself say? This is my son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We're going to touch more on that a bit in a second, but I want to backpedal here to talk about the image uh, of the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus, okay? What is going on here? There's several things that this points to. Um, this is beautiful imagery that points to beautiful other places in Scripture. So, for example, um, this points to Genesis 1, where we heard that the Spirit of God at the beginning of creation was hovering over the water, okay? So, we get similar imagery there. Also at Genesis 8, we get imagery of Noah's dove, who was also hovering about the water, flying about the water, and his dove who returns to him with an olive branch signaling the end of the flood. And both of these things point to a new creation, okay? So Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 are both stories of a new creation, and by getting this image of the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus, we are being signaled the beginning of a new creation as well. So Jesus is going to begin turning the world on its head in a way, but in the most beautiful way possible. So that's the the beautiful imagery of the 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 Spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, coming upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Let's talk more about the the words that God the Father uses to describe Jesus. He says, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." There's three places in Scripture that this appears to point to. The first place that it points to is to Isaiah forty. Two, we've been doing a lot of reading from Isaiah during our first readings over the last several weeks, and you will not be surprised to know that our first reading for the Feast of the Baptism is from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42, the prophet speaks this oracle that says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay, so in this beautiful section of Isaiah 42, we get total parallel description of what's happening in Matthew 3. So I'll read Isaiah 42 again. Here is my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in the prophet Isaiah, again, it says, I have put my spirit upon him. And this points to verse 16 in Matthew 3, where the spirit of God, like we've been talking about, descends on Jesus like a dove. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay. So that's the first thing that this, uh, these words of God, the father point to Isaiah 42, which is our first reading. Secondly, they point to Psalm two, specifically Psalm two verse seven. So let, let's look at this Psalm two verse seven says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today I have begotten you. So this is the famous uh, Psalm referring to um, the, the new king being put upon his throne. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. But let's, let's read the whole Psalm to get the context of what's going on here. So first of all, it could be helpful to understand that many scholars believe that Psalm 1 and 2 serve as dual introductions to the entire book of Psalms, to the entire Psalter. So Psalm 2, verse 1 and following. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, with trembling, kiss his feet, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you look at Psalm 2 in its entirety, we see um, that the psalmist is painting the picture of an evil world that plots against God's chosen but God's chosen is going to overcome all the evil and all the plotting. And so we get this, this image of, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. You are my son today. I have begotten you. And God continues speaking. I will make the nations your heritage. In other words, I will give the nations to you and the ends of the earth shall be your possession. You shall break them the evil ones, the plotters, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Is this not an amazing image of what Jesus is in fact going to do when he saves us from from evil, right? From the plotters and, and the one who is who is the prince of evil, Satan, right? And this is ties into the 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 third verse that I want to look at here in exploring um, the the depths of meaning behind God the Father's words at the end of our gospel. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we looked at Isaiah forty two. We just looked at Psalm two. 
I want to look at Genesis 22 because at Genesis 22, we have Isaac, the son of Abraham, who's referred to multiple times as Abraham's beloved son. Okay, so when God the Father uses this language to refer to Jesus, he's pointing us towards Genesis 22 and Jesus as the new Isaac. Okay, and this is totally loaded. Because at Genesis 22, we have the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac, okay? And I think I've touched on this in other episodes before, but you have to understand that Isaac is not a small boy in the story, as many people believe, and it leads people to be extremely bothered by Genesis 22. To, to some people, it's even led them to, to question their faith, because how could a good and loving God ask uh, a father to, to sacrifice his young innocent and helpless child. Well, you have to understand that details in the text, as well as the rabbinic tradition, so the tradition of the rabbis, the teachers of Judaism, tells us that Isaac was not a small boy. In fact, he was a grown man. That changes the story completely so that now you no longer have a, a father who's committing child abuse, but you have a son willingly cooperating in the sacrifice of his father, okay? Whoa, we're starting to get the the beautiful parallels going on here. And so at Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and to go to a mountain that God will point out. And there he's going to sacrifice Isaac. Jesus as well is going to go to the land of Moriah to a mountaintop that he himself as God is going to choose and there he's going to sacrifice himself um, in union with the will of his father. The name of that mountain is Calvary. But let me touch on Moriah here because you might be like, where's the correlation between Mount Moriah or the land of Moriah and Jerusalem? Well, it's understood that the land of Moriah was where present day Jerusalem is, or you might say that the hills of Jerusalem were part of the mountain range of Moriah. And the mountaintop, now called Mount Moriah, on which Isaac was sacrificed, is actually where the Old Testament temple stood and where today um, the Dome of the Rock is okay, and so Jesus does, like Isaac and Abraham, go to the land of Moriah and to a mountain that um, he chooses. That God chooses the mountain of Calvary, and there he willingly participates in the sacrifice of his father by giving of himself on the cross, and in doing so, he breaks them with a rod of iron, and he dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And who and what does he break and dash? The oppression of the devil, as St. Peter talks about in our second reading from Acts chapter 10. And so we see in Jesus's baptism, the beginning of his public ministry that is aimed at the end of the day towards Calvary. Jesus is going to spend time teaching, revealing who he is. He's going to spend time um freeing people from the oppression of the devil through um, his miracles and his healings. But at the end of the day, he's going to, he's going to dash them into pieces and break them with a rod of iron as Psalm 2 talks about. And he's going to do that in much the same way that Abraham and Isaac did on that 
mountain in the land of Moriah when he mounts his throne, having come triumphantly into Jerusalem, but his throne is not like the throne you expect. His throne is the throne of the cross, and from that throne, he will rule us victoriously. Praise be Jesus. Jesus.